All right. I gave you three minutes. Three minutes this morning. Usually it's about two minutes. I gave you all an extra minute. So. <clears throat> well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, we are picking up where we left off a couple of weeks ago in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Rick is going to hand out Bibles, but he's dropping them. And so uh, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Rick might get one to you. Um, <laughs> Luke chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses 37 through 54 this morning. Luke 11, verse 37 through 54. Tell of my message this morning is when a dinner party turns ugly. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you for this time we could spend in your word. Thank you just, Lord, for the, the great time of worship that we've had, Lord. And you are worthy of all of our praise, all of our adoration, all of our worship, Lord. And so we thank you for the sweet time of worship. And Lord, we want to continue to worship you through the study of your word. We pray, Lord, that as we dig into your word, that you would reveal to us, open our eyes to see what you would have for us this morning, be it personally in our own lives, Lord, as a church corporately. Lord, we want to honor you with our lives, to glorify you with our lives, Lord, so we're open to receive all that you have for us this morning. And finally, Lord, we pray if there's anyone here or anyone watching online that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again today, Lord, would you especially touch their heart, touch their life, Help them to see their need for you, that they return from their sin and cry out to you today for salvation. Thank you for our time together, Lord. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, suppose someone, over to, one, someone went over to Bass Pro Shop, and they go walking through the store, and they, they're, they're buying all sorts of fishing equipment. I mean, they're buying the tackle box and the, the best pole and the reel and, the, and all the, you know, maybe the waders that you go into the water with and then the hat with all the little lures on top of that and, and even buy the fishing license, even put the bumper sticker on the back of their car that says the worst day fishing is better than the best day working. Would that make him a fisherman? Hardly. You have to fish in order to be a fisherman. Growing up in Southern California and spending my summers at the beach, there was a name for those who did the same thing with surfing. They were called posers. Posers would stand on the boardwalk or on their beach and have their surfboard right next to them, you know, got the wetsuit on and just kind of stand there. Hey, dude, hang loose. Surf's up, dude, far out. Yet they themselves never actually got into the water, but they looked good. They sounded good. You know, today there are a lot of posers in the church. Not our church, but the church of Jesus Christ. They come into a church. They look like everybody else. They even have a, a Bible app. They open up on their phone. They've got the lingo down. Praise the Lord, brother. Nice to see you, sister. And they, you know, awesome. Isn't God good? And they talk so eloquently about the Christian life, but they don't live it. You see, to be a fisherman, you need to fish. 
To be a surfer, you need to surf. To be a Christian, you must completely, wholeheartedly follow Jesus Christ. You must come humbly before our God and admit your sinfulness. Turn away from it and follow His Son, Jesus Christ, with everything that is within you. But you see, posers won't do that. Now, this isn't just a problem in our day and age. Jesus had posers in His time. Although they weren't called posers, they were called Pharisees. And in our study this morning, a poser invites Jesus over for dinner. I find it interesting that in looking at the life of Christ... And seeing the Father's heart revealed through Jesus, we see that Jesus was one way with the common people and another way with the religious leaders. Among the common people, Jesus looked at them with with compassion, as a sheep without a shepherd. He saw them as hungry and, and, and thirsty and unable to fill that void in their lives. He saw them as being burdened down and heavy laden with life and the responsibilities that heaped upon them. And he saw them as suffering and his heart went out to them with compassion and care. But on the other hand, whenever you read of Jesus talking to, corresponding with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, he usually was grieved. In fact, you can say at the very least he was right to the point, kind of in your face with them, not holding anything back. I mean, you rarely hear Jesus speaking harsh words towards anyone in Scripture, but almost every time he did, it was towards the religious leaders uh, that it was directed towards, towards the posers. And that's what we're going to see this morning, if you're taking notes. We're going to see three things. Number one, the invitation. Number two, the denunciation. Number three, the reaction. First and foremost, the invitation. Look at verse 37. And as he spoke, this is Jesus, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. So this Pharisee walked up. Jesus is speaking. He kind of interrupts them and says, hey, come, come have food with me. Now, right away, I'm sure Jesus said, okay, something's up here. I know these guys too well. But I love that Jesus never refused an opportunity to have a meal with someone, be it an invitation from a friend or from an enemy. Uh, I like that. You know why? Because I can relate to Jesus here. Jesus enjoyed eating with people. I mean, don't ever read of Jesus turning down a time, uh, uh, an invitation to eat. In fact, one time he even invited himself. Remember Zacchaeus? Yeah, come down from the tree. I'm going to have food at your house. You know, the Bible teaches that one of the first things we're going to do in heaven is to sit down in what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19. I can't wait. Jesus, the Lamb of God, is going to put on this great feast for us. And we're just going to have that fellowship with him. And wow. Uh, and even right now, the Lord desires to, to eat with us. That is, eating speaks of fellowship and communion together with Him. Revelation 3.20, a verse that we often quote in regards to people coming to Christ, was actually written to the church of Jesus Christ. And it says this, Behold, I, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. The Lord desires to have that intimate relationship with us, that fellowship, that communion, to be in His Word, listening to Him speak to our hearts as we pour out our hearts in that communication, that fellowship. So Jesus accepts an invitation to dinner. Now here's where the dinner party turns ugly. Jesus walks in, He sits down to eat, and in verse 38 through 41 we read, When the Pharisees saw it, he marveled that he, had, that he had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, 
Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Wickedness, Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. You see, what seemed and started out as a nice, nice invitation to dinner at this Pharisee's house, upon further read, we see that it wasn't intended to be such a friendly dinner after all. Things started to turn ugly when a Pharisee marveled in verse 38 that Jesus didn't wash his hands before eating. And all these other Pharisees, all these other important religious leaders here, and, and he didn't wash his hands. Now understand, this wasn't like we tell our kids to go and wash before dinner. This wasn't a hygiene issue here. This is the ceremonial ritual washing. The book of Leviticus makes it clear that the ceremonial cleansing was intended only for the priests. But over the years, the priest required it of the people. And here's this, this Pharisee. He is shocked. I can't believe it. Did you see him? I mean, he didn't even wash like we all do. I mean, look at him. You know, as soon as you, you read this, you realize that this is just another one of those setups that happens so frequently between Jesus and the Pharisees. They're constantly looking at ways to accuse Jesus, to trip him up. Why? Well, because at this time, Jesus had a tremendous following. People's lives were being transformed. Judaism has lost its power. They lost its influence and really was helplessly lost. But here was Jesus, so powerful, so real, touching people's lives, transforming people's hearts. And people from all over were being drawn to him. So it's out of this jealousy, out of this rage that the the Pharisees sought whenever they could to accuse him. But you know, that never stopped Jesus, never slowed him down. He wasn't afraid of them. He wasn't intimidated by them. He simply responded to them in truth. You know, sooner than Jesus accepted this invitation to this meal, then they started in on him. But you see, in their protest against Jesus, they were really destroying stopping their opportunity to get to know Jesus, to hear from him. I mean, could you imagine having Jesus Christ over to your house to sit down and have a meal with you? What do you serve the Son of God? You know, angel food cake? I don't know. Angel hair pasta? Heavenly hamburgers? That would be in and out burgers. But anyway... But here was the Son of the living God in your home. You have this great opportunity to have fellowship, to have communion with Him, yet to have something in your own heart that is ruining the whole thing. I mean, what you could have had, what they could have known and shared, they lost it all. They missed such a great opportunity. And instead of enjoying Jesus as He desires of all men, they separated themselves from Him. And I think the same thing can happen from us from time to time and our own lives personally if we're not careful. If there's maybe some, some bitterness or unforgiveness in our hearts towards another person. And we come into church and, and we expect to hear from God. The only message that God's going to talk to your heart is, is that of, of repentance and unforgiveness. Uh, forgiveness, rather. To let that bitterness go. And the humility forgive. It's not until then that you truly will be able to hear and to receive from the Lord. See, here we have a, a number of men around this room watching Jesus, looking at him, thinking they've really got him this time. But it's them who's been God. It's them who's living in darkness and deceit. They were living in personal defeat in their own spiritual lives, and they didn't even know it. And not only that, not only did they not even know how bad off they were, 
They actually thought that they were just fine. And on top of that, they thought that they were not only just fine, but they thought that they had the authority to evaluate and judge everybody else who were fine, whether they were fine or not. See, it became that Pharisee's job to judge other people. To look down to see if others could ever come close to being as spiritual as they thought they were. Again, instead of enjoying fellowship with one another, Jesus is saying you're judging everything a person says or does and making sure they know when they're wrong. When you're really worse off than they are. What a terrible place to be in. It's total hypocrisy. It's pharisaical. These Pharisees had substituted ritual for reality, formality for faith, liturgy for a vital, loving relationship with God. And in reality, God hates hypocrisy. I think if even in the early church, Ananias and Sapphira were radically dealt with by God because of their hypocrisy. They acted as though they, they sold this land and they gave it all to God as a gift, but all the while they were lying to the Holy Spirit, holding some back. And, 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 and you know the story, if you've ever, ever read Acts chapter 5, God struck them dead. They were struck dead out of the church. First ones to truly be slain in the Spirit. I mean, could you imagine if that happened today? If God dealt with us in the same way He did back then concerning hypocrisy. None of us would make it to worship. I'm giving you my heart. No, you're not. You're dead. (laughs) I surrender all. No, you don't. You're dead. You're gone. You're gone. You're gone. We'd be dropping down the aisles. No, thank God for his grace. But that's why Jesus says, this is your problem, hypocrisy. Look at verse 39 again. Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness, foolish ones. You're so concerned about your external actions, but yet you totally neglect the internal state of your heart. (coughs) Excuse me. These religious leaders were good at looking good. I mean, could you imagine going to a person's house to eat, and from a distance, the table looks great. Flowers on the table, the dishes look very clean and shiny on the outside. But then when you get to the table, and you sit down, and you notice that the plates and cups, they have this old, moldy-looking, hairy stuff growing on the inside of them. You look inside the cup, and it's disgusting. Like some of your refrigerators, you know, leftover food stuck in the bottom of the cup, and that green and white, hairy mold just coming up on the... Mm. That's what Jesus is saying here. You spend so much time trying to look good on the outside, being that perfect poser that you forget to clean yourself up on the inside. Inwardly, you're full of greed. Inwardly, you're full of wickedness. Listen, Psalm 51 tells us God desires truth in our inward parts. Psalm 51, 6, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. God's not impressed with our outward actions when our hearts are wrong. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 15, 8. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So verse 41 here, Jesus is telling them to do what is right if you truly want to be clean. He says, but rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. In other words, give to the needy without putting on a show. Give to the poor without expecting any sort of you know, acclamations, anything in return. Just do it for the love of God and, and to help others. But I love that Jesus doesn't stop here. See, this invitation now leads to Jesus to, leads Jesus to point number two, denunciation. In fact, in the next ten verses, Jesus gives six 
denunciation, six woes, if you will, to those Pharisees at this dinner party. Now, this isn't just like, whoa, slow down, horse, you know, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, these are like, whoa, how sad for you. Whoa, how tragic for you. Woe unto you because the judgment that is coming to you is inevitable. It means that a state of intense hardship or distress, disaster, horror. Woe. Now, the words that Jesus would say concerning these guys at this particular point in the story, I'm thinking they're going, why did we ever invite this guy to dinner <laughs> in the first place? And listen, the reason that he is coming on so strong is because he knows the attitudes of their hearts. He sees their hearts. Forget about the condition of their hands. He sees their hearts. And throughout the whole Gospels, he's trying to break through to these guys, through their traditions that have separated these guys' hearts from his own heart and the heart of the Father. You see, folks, it's always a matter of the heart. The heart of the matter is it's a matter of the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at our hearts. So in these next ten verses, Jesus is trying to get through to them where they need to make important drastic changes. And he declares six woes on those that were present at this table. First woe. Woe for your tithing. Look at verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. Those you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. They were so careful about tithing. They would even tithe on their mint leaves and rue. Rue is a tiny, strongly scented, evergreen type herb. In other words, they'd get their little spices down and they'd say, okay, one for you, God, nine for me. One for you, God. And, 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 and you know, they, they were tithed to the last penny, not a penny more, a penny less. Even though the law did not require it, the Pharisees, with their attitude, is taking everyone the spices out and give it to the Lord and, met, you know, going back and forth. He's taken all this time to do this because he wants to be so legalistically right with God. And Jesus is saying, give me a break. There's a serious problem here. You're, you're majoring on the minors. On the one hand, your detailed ritualistic religion looks really great on the outside, but what is happening on the inside of your heart? There's no justice. There's no mercy. There's no love. You think that you're right with God because you're doing all these things. You know, in the book of Micah, chapter uh, uh, 6, verses 7 and 8, we read, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of ramps, ten thousands rivers of oil? Shall I get my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. The Lord is saying, your tithe is nothing to me if your heart isn't right. What is the right heart? To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Now, I need to point out here that Jesus is not saying do away with the tithe. What does he say? Verse 42, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. In other words, your tithing would be fine if your heart was right towards God. You are focused on these minor issues and forgetting the most important thing. See, without humility on our part, without mercy shown towards others, all you're doing, again, is just practicing religiosity. It's just religion. You're a poser. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we are given some important principles about tithing. If you're new here, we don't ever really talk about giving and tithing here at Calvary unless we come to across it in our verse-by-verse study of God's Word, which we've just done. <laughs> and so 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7 has the right heart in giving. Paul writes there, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
Now, let me say this right off the bat. Giving is for Christians. If you're not a Christian, we don't want you to give. Giving is, a, is an act of worship to the Lord for all he has done for us. Well, here Paul tells us he loves a cheerful giver. Listen, giving should never be some horrible ordeal. It should not be torturous. It should not be done out of guilt or because you feel pressure. We should give gladly, joyfully, and happily back to the Lord. How much should you tithe? Paul writes, let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. Whatever God lays on your heart. Now let me say this, if your waitress does a good job, we tip them well, or at least we should. How much more do we give God, who's good all the time? But you see, the important thing here is not the amount, it's the heart. In fact, Paul says God loves a, a cheerful giver. You know what that word cheerful means? Hilariously. Oh, I'm so happy to do I get to give to the law. I'm delighted to do this. God loves a cheerful giver. But that verse continues on in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, in the New Living Translation. He says, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. I like that. And then he adds in verse 10 of chapter 2, or 2 Corinthians 9, For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. What God is saying is, if you give to me with the right motive, if you give gladly, cheerfully, joyfully, I will bless you and bless you. I'll give you more than you need. Enough for your own need and enough for you to give to others. Again, it's a blessing to give. In fact, Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. People say, well, I can't afford to give. I can't afford to tithe. Well, I have to say, I can't afford not to give. Because I believe what God says in His Word. I believe His promises. If I give to Him, He's going to give back to me. That doesn't mean that's not why I give. And I don't obligate God. I don't give to give back. But rather because God has been so faithful to me. And I realize everything I have comes from Him. I'll gladly reinvest back into the kingdom, offering this fruit to him, knowing that I'm laying up for myself treasures in heaven. But I know what God's word says. He promises that if I give, he does give back. You can't outgive God. You know, there's a provocative promise found in the book of Malachi uh, uh, that God gives to his, his people. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, it says, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me, but you say, in what way have we robbed you? <clears throat> Tithes and offerings, you are cursed with the curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Now listen to this promise in verse 10. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven, and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. See, God is promising something there. He's saying, if you will remember me in your giving, in your tithing, I will open up the windows of heaven. I will pour out to you a blessing. Do you believe God for that promise? I mean, it's an important promise from God. We ought to take advantage of it. And the Lord says in Malachi 3.11, And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field. And actually, in all actuality, your money's going to go further. You know, it seems like it just flies out of our head, but if you're it's going to go further. Again, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, your tithe is nothing to me. It's your heart, and your heart's not right. That's the first woe, woe on tithing. Second woe, woe for your self-exaltation. Look at verse 43. What are you Pharisees? For you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. 
So these are the seats, the, the ones that faced out so everyone could check them out. They, they'd love to, to put them up on this platform and all in their nice clothes and sitting there looking out. And I mean, the Pharisees loved to put reputation above character. They prided themselves in the position that they held instead of being a servant for the people. They wanted to be esteemed by the people. They loved the best seat in the synagogues, but they also loved to be called by a title. You know, they would go through the marketplace and be recognized, Oh, Rabbi so-and-so! Oh, yes, excuse me, it's Dr. Rabbi so-and-so to you. It's Most Holy Reverend Dr. Rabbi so-and-so to you. So concerned about the reputation. It's been said reputation is what people think we are. Character is what God knows we are. The problem is they had it all backwards. They needed to understand the definition of a true minister is really a slave, a servant. Now this brings us to the third woe, and that's the woe for your hypocrisy. Look at verse 44. What are you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. So this woe here, it would be like getting a paper cut and pouring lemon juice on it to them. I mean, this would have really stunk. Because for a Jew, if you want to keep clean ritually, you wouldn't go near a dead body. And they believed that to walk on an unmarked grave was defiling. So they would whitewash tombstones in order to see them, to avoid them, so they wouldn't become defiled. So Jesus is saying, you are like graves which are not seen. Essentially, he was saying they're having a defiling effect on everyone that they come in contact with. I think of of Pigpen in the old Charlie Brown comics. You know, wherever he, he walked, he brought his dirt with him and got everyone dirty in its wake. I found this comic. I was just thinking about this, and I found this comic, so I brought it. It says, Pigpen is on one side and Mr. Clean is on the other. And the captain reads, In a dark alley, Mr. Clean and Scrubbing Bubble eyeball their next victim. But this was no ordinary opponent. <laughs> that was great. Again, Jesus was saying to the Pharisees that they were having a defiling effect on everyone they came in contact with. And what's worse, Jesus is saying, it's because of your hypocrisy. You don't even know that you are being defiled and defiling others. Such a hypocrite because people are buying into your foolish religiosity that they don't even know that what they're buying into, it's a lie and it's ungodly. You know, I don't think Jesus was very seeker-friendly when talking to the Pharisees. But we see why. Because here in verse 45, they actually have the nerve to foolishly try to correct Jesus. Not a wise thing to do. Look at verse 45. Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, well, you reproach us also. No, 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 no. So take that. Now, if I were Jesus, I think I would have a little bit of sarcasm right here. I think I would say, oh, oh, have I hurt your feelings? I am so sorry. I totally meant to rebuke you. I, I, mean, I mean, I just would have got on them. Listen, and I'll tell you why. God gave the Jews the Torah, which is the first five books of Moses, the first five books of our Old Testament. They, in turn, created the Mishnah, which was the oral tradition that explained the Torah that had been handed down over a period of 335 years. Well, then came the Talmud, which was the writings that explained the Mishnah, which explained the Torah. I read that they actually have an English version of this that is 36 volumes and has 36,000 pages. So when this lawyer says, teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also, the reason they were reproached is because they were the ones who wrote the laws that the scribes copied and the Pharisees enforced. They were the ones uh, responsible for complicating the word of God. 
and taking what was there to bless men and give direction for men and women and instead made it a burden to them and impossible to bear. So when this guy says, teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us as well. Jesus responds, I haven't even started with you, pal. Okay, that's my paraphrased version, but look at verse 46. Fourth woe. Woe for burdening people. Verse 46. And he said, woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourself do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. I think this is one thing that Jesus hated more than any of the other things they did. Because it misrepresented God. And it burdened his people. Jesus came to be the burden lifter. The burden bearer, not the burden bringer. But Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. So Jesus says, Woe to you for heaping burdens on God's people that God never intended. But he doesn't stop there. Well, number five, Woe to you for killing God's messengers. Look at verse 47 through 51. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. And in fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you built their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they would kill and persecute. The blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation generation. From A to Z, from Abel to Zechariah would be required at the hand of these religious establishment. In other words, woe to you for rejecting and killing God's messengers. Uh, their, their fathers were, were guilty of killing the prophets of God. And in fact, you know, it was a dangerous thing to be a prophet. Many were rejected. Many were killed. So in reality, Jesus is saying that these men were consenting to the deeds of their fathers and killing the prophets, and now at that very moment, conspiring, they were conspiring to kill Jesus. You know, we're told in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, of the prophets, some died by stoning, some were sawed in half, others were killed with the sword, some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. How would you like to be a prophet of God? Tradition has it that when Jeremiah uh, that Jeremiah was stoned to death by the Jews in Egypt. Isaiah, tradition has it, was sawn in half. Jesus says, Woe to you for rejecting and killing God's messengers. Now we come to the sixth and final woe. Woe for taking away God's word. Look at verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the, keys, the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. Final woe that Jesus brings against them is for taking away the key of knowledge. That is, they were robbing the people of God's word. You see, there's a threefold problem here. First, they themselves fell to enter in. They spent a, a great deal of time studying the scriptures, but, but they missed the whole point. The scriptures were there to point them to Jesus Christ, and they held the key to that knowledge, but they failed to open the door. Jesus is the key to the knowledge. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Secondly, they had made the study of the Word of God so complicated with all their interpretations that they had no common person could ever read it. Then thirdly, in so doing that, they were actually hindering people from truly entering in and seeking after the Lord. See, they had made uh, pursuing God and studying the Scriptures a thing for only the lofty to do. It's only for the highly skilled and trained. And we'll tell you what it says. You cannot figure it out on your own. I think we see the same thing today. I think we see it with some of these professors in, in some of these seminaries. They, they, they cast all sorts of doubts on the infallibility of the scriptures. 
But then there are, are those seminary teachers who place such a strong importance on the original Bible languages, and they give the impression that the Holy Spirit can only speak to a person who knows Greek or Hebrew. Listen, well, while there is indeed a place for reaching back to the, the richness of the original language, it must never be perceived that you can't just pick up your Bible and understand what it says. The Lord will teach us and instruct anyone who opens up his word, no matter what their educational background is. With that said, I also think we need to be especially careful with some of these so-called Bible translations that are out there today. Let me say this. When it comes to the Message Bible, you're not getting a little translation of that Bible. You are getting author Eugene Peterson's thoughts about what he thinks the Bible says. It's paraphrased. But the problem is, in his paraphrase, what he is saying is wrong in a lot of verses. They may be funny, but they're wrong. And then we have all these, these new study Bibles that are out there. The old men with long hair study Bible. You know, or the soon to be released balding man study Bible. Wow. Special notes about all the balding men in the Bible that God used. I think some of these, some of these Bibles have more commentary than they do scriptures on the page. Listen, I'm not saying they're bad. I am saying the message Bible is bad. But, but these other study Bibles, they're not bad. In fact, I think some of them can be extremely helpful. But they can also distract a person from allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to their hearts. And that's what Jesus is saying. Woe to you, you lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. In other words, only they could explain to the people what God's word said, and so they're keeping the, the word of God from the people. So he's given them six woes. He really just played, laid it out there, the truth to them. Now, whenever there is a, a correction, especially of this magnitude, there can only be two reactions. Either the person is going to resist it and get bitter and angry, or they're going to respond with repentance and remorse. They're going to want to make that wrong right. So let's see what they did. I'm sure you kind of know what they did. Point number three, the reaction. Look at verse 53. And as he said these things to them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to sell him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. What a shock. I guess we see how they took it. They resisted him. They said, oh, let's get him. And this is really what happens when a dinner party turns ugly. You know, I read this. I think we all can applaud Jesus and shout, go get him, Jesus. Nail him. They needed to hear it. Hit him again, harder, harder, hit him again. But I also think that these verses weren't recorded for us and passed down through all these years for us just to look back at the Pharisees and scribes and lawyers and say, whoa, they were really messed up. Now, God has given us these instances in his word that we might examine our own lives, that we might search our own hearts to see if the same traits that Jesus nailed these religious rulers on might have some foothold in our lives personally. And then the question is, what is our reaction going to be when the Holy Spirit touches our hearts and says, listen up, I'm speaking to you on this. Do we resist it and get bitter and angry? Or do we say, well, I wish so-and-so was here. They really needed to hear this. Or do we say, Lord, thank you. I needed to hear this. And I respond in repentance. I think as we look at this passage, we need to individually ask ourselves to look in the mirror and ask some simple questions regarding these six woes. If we are honest, I think we all can see there's a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. Are we guilty of the way we tithe, the way we give to the Lord? Are we guilty of self-exaltation? Look at me, look who I am. Are we guilty of hypocrisy, being one way at church and another way at home, a poser? Are we guilty of putting burdens 
on people, expecting more from them than they are capable of. Are we guilty of killing God's messengers? Okay, not killing the pastor, okay? It's just rejecting the message from God's word that he gives. Are we guilty of not being in God's word? I think when we look at this passage in that way, I think we can all find ourselves saying, ouch, well, I need to repent of this, this wrong attitude, of this pride, my judgmental attitude, critical spirit. I need to repent of being a burden bringer or living in hypocrisy. See, all of these things will affect our relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, I think, I think we really need as Christians to serve the Lord as energetically, if not more, than we used to when we served the devil. You know, when we were still in the world and served the devil, we did it everything with everything we had. You know, go for all the gusto you can. We live for ourselves, our pleasure, for the dollar, for power. Do we serve the Lord with that same fervency? We should be serving him even more. I see Jesus was invited to dinner at the Pharisee's house, and in essence, he was served leftovers. I mean, how often do we do the same thing? We have all the time in the world for social media, emails, texting, but no time for the Bible. We have all the time for movies, no time for Christ. Time for whatever interests us when God gets the last few minutes of our day after we've watched all the programs we wanted to watch. God gets the leftovers. And as we lay in bed at night, exhausted, we remember, oh yeah, God, the creator of the universe, the one who died for me. Maybe we open up the Bible and quickly drift off into sleep with our faces in our Bibles. Again, if we only serve God with the same zeal and excitement that we were once reserved for the devil. I look at what's happening in our world today, and I see how evil our society has become. These are satanically energized times in which we live. Blatant evil is staring back at us like never before, wherever we look. I think of the recent shooting there in Kansas City, the chief celebration parade, a mom gunned down and children hurt. You know, it seems like every year the crime statistics go up and up and up. Then there's this push for all sorts of the sexual morality. It's reached an all-time high. And anyone that dares to stand up against it is mocked and ridiculed. So as we watch the world go down the tube in hyperspeed, how much more should we stop playing the game of church and start being the real church? As, as believers, it's time to pull out the stops and give all for the Lord to be that salt and light in our community. Listen, the devil's working overtime. What about us? Time for us to get moving. Paul writes in Romans 11, 13, 11, and 12. We'll close with this. And do this, noting the time that now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. How that verse rings so true, especially today. Folks, I don't bring these things up to condemn us. You know, I, you know it's been said when you point the finger, you've got three pointing right back at you. I look at these in my heart. I go, Lord, help me, help me to live for you. To encourage us to do more for the Lord, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Don't be a poser. Get into the water, the living water of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for, Holy Spirit, for the power for it to, to convict our hearts and convict our lives to help us to change so we can be more like you, Lord, serving you in a greater capacity. Lord, thank you for revealing to us maybe areas in our hearts and our lives that you want to work on, you want to clean up. Get rid of that mold that maybe has been, been happening in our lives, Lord, to clean that up. Thank you for the work of your Spirit, Lord. And Father, we do repent. If there's anything in our lives that we just looked over this morning, 
that we can say, ooh, that, that was me. Lord, we are sorry. We want to turn from that sin and cry out to you. And finally, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here or anyone watching online they've never, that's never been cleansed of their sin, in fact, they're still living in, in sin and in dirt, they're still being controlled by the devil, but maybe they're here and they've heard your word and they want to change. I pray, Lord, you, you touch their heart, that they would give their life to you this morning, that they would not leave this place without making that commitment to you. Thank you for our time together in your word, Lord. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.